Welcome to Nat Chats With. I'm sitting here with my friend Amanda today, and our topic is choosing motherhood. When she decided to talk about this, she had no idea it's a subject I'm passionate about too. So I think we both have a lot to say. My views on motherhood have everything to do with it being a very big job. So the idea of it being a choice is something that I absolutely want to discuss. Clearly, I have a bunch to say. I'm just attacking. No, you're fine. I'm just listening. We met each other almost seven years ago, right? Yes. And we worked together for how long? Is it sad to say I think it's only two years? It feels like longer. It feels like longer because I think we stayed in touch, but we only worked together for those two years. Okay. And then Amanda got married and then started having babies. And so that stopped us working together. And how old are your kids now? I have three kids. My oldest is five years old. He's a boy. And I have a three-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. So they came one right after the other. And I love them very much. And they are extremely cute and very sweet. sweet. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's fascinating as somebody who chose not to have children to see friends having children and then what those children are becoming. I really don't think everybody should be allowed to have children. It's, I know, a very large statement that some people make. I make it simply because I see how a lot of people are parents and don't want to be, because it's a big job. And if you don't want that really huge job, you don't want the responsibility, you don't want the commitment, you shouldn't do it. You would think that life experience in and of itself would be enough for a person to step back and say, am I the kind of person who could have a kid? Do I want that responsibility? Because it's not a pet. It is one of the very few decisions that once you make it, it is yours and you have to deal with it for not even just 18 years, but all the years after that, because you will have influenced its entire life. As I grow up, learn that adults make that decision and even not adults make that decision for lots of different complicated reasons. But I tend to, I think, sit in the same boat as you with the big statement of, I think it's okay to say that some people just shouldn't have children. And I think that it's even more important for you to be able to say that about yourself. It makes me really sad that for a long time, our society has been one that encourages or pressures even all women to have children. And if you do not have children, then there's something wrong with you or you're missing out or you can't and it's sad. But I don't think that that has to be the case. And I think that it's detrimental when it is the case. Yeah. It's also sad when people's family members put pressure when they're not the ones who are going to spend 20 years raising them nonstop. Yes. And it's kind of like somebody going, you should get a dog who would be willing to be told they need to get pets. No one's nobody. With children, there's so much more you need to do. There's so much involved as a job for yourself. I don't like how that sounds. Well, I think that's okay. I think it's okay to talk about motherhood as a job. And I think that actually bridges the gap between some holes in the belief of what motherhood is and should be, because people don't treat it like a job. And it is one. And it should come with the esteem of jobs, too. And in this day and age, people don't tend to have a job for 20 years. They get sick of it and they move on. Mm -hmm. People don't want to commit to something for a really long time. And I personally have seen 40-year-olds want to check out of being a mother 
I've seen it quite a few times. And it's always somewhere around 40 that they act like, you know, I'm kind of done. And they don't say it. But they're tired at that point. But it's obvious that they're not wanting to do the mom stuff and their brain is starting to wander and they're wanting to concentrate on themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sorry, you made this choice long ago, long ago, that it doesn't matter that you're at 40 and that you're bored being a mom. This is a human. You are committed. And that was also a large factor in why I didn't want to be a mom. Because of the commitment. Yeah. I saw how big it was from the beginning. When I was 19, I went to Romania to volunteer in an orphanage. I had seen what the news programs were showing was happening in Romania after the people executed Ceausescu. Hundreds of thousands of orphans were abandoned. And the reason for that was there was no birth control. And so with a lack of birth control and a lack of sex education, people are getting pregnant. And what are people doing when they have these babies? They're leaving them in the hospital. They don't want them. And that happened for a lot of years and nobody knew. And then the cameras got in and when we saw what was going on, me as a sophomore in high school went, oh my God, I need to go to Romania. I need to hold babies. I was an incredibly immature 15-year-old. I had zero desire to even go to college. That was in 89 when they executed him, December of 89. And it was in December of 91 that I was on my way to Romania. I originally went for three months. And when I got there, I fell in love with these children. I couldn't leave. And so I stayed for a year. And when a year rolled around, I couldn't stay. My heart was so broken. That very naive young little girl that went to hold babies learned the hard way. You can't make a difference. You aren't going to succeed. The very long lesson that I'll try to sum up is that I saw what happens to children who are ignored. They didn't have to be ignored per se. They didn't have to be completely ignored because there were orphanage workers. But the orphanage workers were about three or four women to a group of around 20. These women didn't care about these babies. And so they made sure that they got their food. They were just there to do their job. Play, in quotes, never happened. The life part of being a child wasn't happening. And they generally, in the groups that I worked in, were between two and four years old. And the majority had been in the orphanage their whole life. The babies were in a different group, hence the window of two to four years old in my groups. And some of these children didn't crawl. The majority of them didn't chew. Uh, you don't naturally learn how to chew food when you're ignored. They didn't know how to interact. Many of them didn't want to be touched. They would sit and rock and do their own thing. And one would assume by going into the orphanage that these were handicapped children. You know, oh, these, these children were all born with problems. No, they weren't all born with problems and then just happened to land in this one place. The country's full of orphanages. And these handicapped children, and I, I say that with air quotes, these handicapped children were all autistic, severely autistic. And that wasn't because they were born that way. This is what happens to children who are ignored. In the baby group, there was a little girl that had blonde hair and blue eyes. And so the workers in the baby group 
were crazy about her. She obviously wasn't a gypsy. She was this beautiful little baby, and they carried her around the orphanage and doted on her and talked to her, and she was nothing like any of the other children in the orphanage. And as the months went on, she progressed. They're feeding her with a spoon, and she's eating with the spoon. She's giggling. She's crawling. She's doing all the things that none of the other children were doing because they'd just been ignored. And so I saw firsthand that autism is created. It becomes, if you ignore a baby and you don't interact with them and you don't communicate with them and give them the basic stuff that we don't even think of over here, you know, or most people don't even think of, they love their baby. They talk to their baby. They interact with their baby. And when that doesn't happen, you have autism. Short story, long, long story short, um, my mother adopted two of these children that I worked with. I met them at three and four. They were already showing signs of autism, the boy far more severe than the girl. Neither of them could talk because they don't get communicated to, so they don't learn to talk. The girl, her name is now Joanna, and the boy is Danny. Uh, Joanna would try to communicate. She would just make sounds. She was so present. She would look me in the eyes and, and try to communicate best she could. Danny had otitis media, and so his ears were full of infection constantly, so he couldn't hear. And so that was an additional barrier for him. Anyway, so I met them at three and four, and they weren't severely autistic. And I didn't even know about autism at the time, right? In fact, I think a lot of people didn't. My mom got them at six and seven. The adoptions took so long. By the time six and seven was reached, they were far more autistic. And the thing about autism is it's not curable. The brain literally does its, its own thing, creating the autism, and there is no going back. And so despite that, you know, you would think that a change of world for these two could still allow them to have parts of a very normal life. But that actually never happened. As they got older and older, they got worse and worse to the point that they almost aren't human anymore. They don't understand communication. They don't understand so many things. They have no empathy. They have no love. They don't have basic, normal qualities that we should have as humans. It does sound horrific to say they're far more animal-like, but that's just the way it is. And this isn't because my mother isn't amazing and loving. If you listen to my podcast, you hear me talk about my mom. My mom is amazing and she has loved them so much. But the reality is autism happens early. Well, what we know about the developing brain right now is that if a child doesn't learn how to speak within the first three years of its life, it probably won't ever. And that goes for a lot of different things as far as child development goes. The first three years of a child's life is enormously important as far as attachment disorders are developed in the first three years of people's life. And those motor habits, or not motor habits, but the motor skills that you're talking about, the chewing, the crawling, the looking people in the eyes, those are developed within the first three years. And the brain closes that gap after that. It's not possible to learn after that. I saw that. I was witness to that. Anybody like you choosing to be a mom and being so excited about it and loving this job, 
I say more power to you because this isn't easy. It's a choice of giving your life to your children until they're adults and they do the same. And I couldn't do that. I saw the impact a mother has on a baby. It is fair to say Romania put me off being a mother. Yeah, I got baby hungry. Yeah, I considered being a mother a few times throughout my life. But then marrying an alcoholic also made me go, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bring children into a life where alcohol has to be a problem. Do you ever feel sad that you had to make that decision? Or do you look back with gratitude that you were able to make that decision? I want to hear more of your thoughts on that experience. I don't regret it because it's one of those things. I don't know what I'm missing. If I had ever been a mother, I probably wouldn't have any of the same opinions as I do now because everything would be based on having been a mother. I chose to stay ignorant. As much capacity as I have for love, I would have had to have lost my life to the child. That's how I operate. I wouldn't have been a shitty mom. Let's put it that way. Did I want the responsibility is kind of what it boiled down to. I had to ask myself, do I want to do that job? And I didn't. It felt too much, too big. And I know that for a lot of people, that sounds like a sad decision because the chances of you growing old alone is very real. I absolutely know that that's a choice I made. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I've been thinking about that too, which surprised me that you brought that up about growing old alone in the decisions that we make, because that's always there in our head of what's going to happen when that happens. And if you think about it, there are parents who have lots of kids who are still alone when they're old because they've severed those ties. And there are people without children who grow old and then the friends that they make or the people that they nurture who are younger than them will still come to them and take care of them in their old age. And I don't think that children are the determining factor on whether or not we're alone in our old age. I think that that is what we've been fed for a very long time. Mm. And maybe it was even true for a very long time. But I don't think that's the case now. And I don't think that it should be a determining factor in whether or not you decide to take on the role of motherhood. But I did love what you mentioned about looking at the job and deciding that that was that was not the circus that you wanted to tie your monkeys to, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and what's crazy to me is that, and, and the fact that it might make some people sad, some people make a job out of traveling and they feel so sad for the other people who have decided not to go traveling. And some people want to be CEOs and some people want to be high school teachers and some people want to be nurses and doctors. And there's so many jobs out there that people feel passionately about that just aren't for other people. And that's one of the reasons why I am a huge advocate for looking at motherhood from the beginning as if it is a job and not as if it is some future relationship or some call to nurture or any of those other very enticing ways of looking at motherhood. Because we can look objectively at any other job out there and say, these are my personality traits. This is the way I like to live. This is my lifestyle. And this is what I want for myself. Which job is going to give that to me? And choose accordingly. And of course, there's always those stories of like, 
the parents pressuring their child to pick a job for the money or for whatever. So I don't think that we'll ever escape the parental pressure or friend pressure of life choices. I think that just comes with being in a relationship with certain people. But I hope that to anybody who is wondering whether or not they should be a mom, that they're allowed to look at whether or not it is for them and make that decision confidently without feeling sad about it. Yeah. I also have this thought occasionally. We don't actually know nor have conclusive evidence what happens when we die. I sometimes contemplate the idea of past lives. Because our body is run by energy and because energy doesn't disappear, it is just as plausible that when we die, we have an opportunity to live a life again. And the stories of reincarnation, if you have looked into any of these stories of children talking about how they died when they were adults and stuff like that, it's really fascinating. I'm open-minded enough to consider reincarnation might be a thing. And motherhood is something that I kind of connect to that. In this life, I chose not to be a mother. And I think it's entirely possible that I did have a life or lives, who knows, hundreds maybe, where I was a mother. I feel as though life is so much about learning and there are countless lessons and we all have different lessons that we're learning. In my mind, it does make more sense that we would have multiple lives to learn multiple lessons more so than one life can offer you. On some level, I do literally rely on the thought in the back of my mind, I probably am going to be a mother. I probably have been. I probably could be again. And because there's no proof otherwise, I'm happy to just keep that open in my mind. And maybe that's me trying to ensure I don't have regret in this life but it doesn't feel that way. You know, I don't feel as though this is a cognitive distortion of mine that I am telling myself, no, I can be a mom in another life. I'm sure of it. You know, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying, as I consider the possibility of multiple lives, it seems just as likely as not having multiple lives. The scales aren't tipped one way or the other for me. I just can't see proof of one or the other based on how many lessons I've learned in this life thus far. And I watch the lessons other people are having to learn. I think I could have been a mom and I think I still could be a mom. Let's just put it that way. And so there isn't sadness or regret. And I know you asked that question ages ago. No, but <laughs> and I this isn't this hear. isn't my only answer for that, but I don't beat myself up in any way over choosing to not be a mom. I get to mother the young people that I interact with regularly. And you do it so well. I do. I think so. <laughs> oh, good. I have huge amounts of love. I have the best mother example anybody could hope for. My mom loves me without measure, without. And it's obvious. And so I know what that's like. And that's what a mom has to do. I think that's what a mom learns to do. <laughs> um, I have so many thoughts. If you don't mind Please. possible tangents. But one of the thoughts is that I would just be so ecstatic if we could have a change in the like the root of the meaning of motherhood, simply because of what you just said to me about being able to be a mother to other people without having actually gone through the motions, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And this comes from a, 
idea that I had that I learned as an 18 or 19 year old girl and that I have kind of grown with and adjusted and played with as I've grown older. I would be so ecstatic if there was the possibility of changing the root meaning of motherhood because I feel like each person holds yin and yang, masculine and feminine energy inside themselves. A lot of what feminine energy is, is to nurture and to love and to grow with and to guide. We do that when we are in relationships. We do that with our jobs. We do that with children. I think it calls back to that feeling that you felt as a sophomore in high school, the very strong, the very innate feeling to see a child in need and to go take care of it. I think that is the feminine energy in us all. And it's said to me that somehow motherhood has only been important to a mother and its child and has not received any sort of validation between any woman and any person that they nurture and take care of. I hear so much from women who get up in their older age who are sad when they go to church or to their family reunions or to talk to the friends who have kids and they feel excluded from the group of motherhood. And I don't think that they should. Hmm. I think that by nature, they are motherly every single time they love another human being. Yeah. That was one of the thoughts that I had. I don't care who you are. And I think this goes for men also who hold the feminine energy inside themselves. Every time that they nurture and love another human being, they are exercising that feminine energy in good ways. They are being motherly. You know what just entered my mind as you said that was it is very common for us to say motherly. Mm -hmm. She's very motherly. It is not very common for us to say fatherly. Mm -hmm. He is fatherly. When was the last time you heard somebody use that expression? He's so fatherly. I don't think ever. If I've ever heard it, I can't recall it, Mm -hmm. you know, so maybe I've heard it. But I think that's important. If only men felt as welcome to be fatherly as women felt welcome to be motherly. You might even argue that women right now don't feel welcome to be motherly. And that might be a controversial subject. But I think the job of motherhood right now, for all intents and purposes, is under attack. I don't think either side feels very excited about it. Because I don't watch TV, I don't watch the news, I purposely don't stay in touch because I find being present so important. So elaborate on that since I'm ignorant as to the attack. Okay. I hope that I do this justice. And that. Well, and honestly, let's go ahead and right there say you're going to do it justice because this is Amanda talking about Amanda's perspective. Yeah. We aren't inviting anyone else into this recording studio. It just applies to so many people and everyone's experience is so different. And I feel so strongly about it that I want, you know, when you get the chance to be a mouthpiece for somebody who's hurting, you know what I'm saying? And, and I think that this topic causes a lot of pain for people. To expand a little bit on that idea, I think that unintentionally, one of the casualties of fighting so hard to be recognized in the workplace as equal, women are, for very good reason, having to put motherhood aside because it is very hard to juggle both working and being a mother. And because of the responsibility of motherhood, I think there's a lot of women who are like, I'm not going to 
take responsibility for this and this, and I'm just going to choose one. And because we so badly want to be taken seriously, we try to do the workplace. Because that's where the greater validation comes in. That's where the greater validation. It's so much easier to measure your worth when you're working for a paycheck. It's so much easier to measure your worth when you can say, I spent X amount of time at my job and I got paid this amount on my paycheck. Look how good I'm doing. And I got a raise and the people in my office are taking me seriously. And when I talk, people listen. And if there hasn't been the exact opposite for motherhood. So I think very naturally in our fight to be recognized and in our fight to find our self-worth and our fight to self-actualize, we have driven very hard down that lane at the expense of where motherhood fits into the picture. And I don't think people are doing it on purpose. I don't think people are trying to make mothers feel small. I don't think that there is any hard feelings, but I do think that it is a casualty of the effort. Likewise, it's not helping on the men's side of things, bring them closer to being fathers, which has, as we know, been an issue for a very long time. The responsibility of a man was to go to work, bring home the bacon, come home and be done. And now we're challenging that idea, but we have gone so far away from what we as a society think parenthood should be, muddied the waters of what we think parenthood should be, if that makes more sense. Mm -hmm. The men don't know how to step into that role. They don't know what to do. And women don't have any idea on how to direct them. And the examples just don't exist. They don't exist. Because so many fathers haven't been fatherly. It's a knock-on effect. When there hasn't been a fatherly example, how can someone just know how to be a good father? Sure, a lot of men say, I'm not going to be anything like my dad. Yeah, that doesn't automatically hand over the skills. Mm Mm-mm. And so there's a lot of figuring it out. I'm kind of not one to talk because I didn't have a father figure. And so I don't even know what I'm missing out on. And if I were a man, I'd probably be super fucked up. (laughs) Probably. I probably would because I don't know that as a man, I can turn to my mother and use her as an example necessarily for how to be a good man. Well, and I want you to think about this also. I say you, you probably already have. But I grew up with my father coming home, sitting down to eat with us, going and playing video games, and then that's it. And then we would have big moments together. He was the Disneyland dad, if you've ever heard that term before. So we would have big moments together where we'd go out as a family and it was really memorable and it was really happy. And so I have positive memories of my father because we had big moments. But then I have no memories of my father in my day-to-day life. And I didn't think about it until after I was married, how much that played into the types of men that I was dating and the type of man that I married. And that's not to say that my dad isn't a good person. And that's definitely not to say that I don't love and adore and respect my husband. But I do realize the correlation of I wasn't looking for men who were plugged in to my everyday life. I was looking for men who were giving me big moments. Mm. And so now I am fighting and it's a constant communication and thank goodness my husband is willing to have constant communication with me to find the relationship that we want. Mm -hmm. But that is one of the things that we have to come back to over and over and over again, because I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it feels like to have a man in my life who is actively engaged. And sometimes I think we're close. And then sometimes I realize we're not and we have to tweak it. And he doesn't know how 
to be actively engaged because his father still, he worked with his father for a little while and his father would be on the phone the whole way to their work. He would be talking to people the whole time they were working together and then be on his phone the whole drive back. And he wasn't getting conversation with his father. That's what children learn, whether it's from their mother or from their father. They learn how to be like them. Mm. And then they bring it into their next relationship. Inadvertently. Because nobody's consciously going, okay, this is what I do. That's not what's happening. No. And I actually just talked to a really close girlfriend today about this very topic. As mothers do, we we were pity partying each other as it goes. When you are in the pits with someone else, it's feels really nice to know that you're feeling the same thing. But we were talking about how when our children play house together, they'll put each other in timeout. What does that say about my parenting if when my children are playing pretend in their make-believe world, that's how they see the mother figure. And I try so many other things before I go put them to timeout. I try getting on their level. I try talking to them clearly. I try giving them action consequence discussions so that I can work them through the things that I'm needing from them before giving them a consequence. And yet when they're playing together, the consequence is what they remember. And so we were lamenting. We were lamenting this sad reality. And we were talking about what are they going to remember when they're older? Is this a reflection of what they're going to think? What they retain. What they retain. And is this a big moment for them, a big deal for them, or is this a little deal for them? Because I can think I've had conversations with my mom and she has said, I am so sorry that I acted this way when you were a child. And I don't remember. I don't remember this guilt that she's held onto for 25 years. It meant nothing to me as a child and it meant everything to her. And you just don't know. You just don't know as a mom what is going to be the make it or break it deal. And you just have to wake up every single day and show up and try hard and be as kind and patient as you can and just hope that they'll be also as forgiving as they can. Isn't that just a human experience though? Mm -hmm. Isn't that just what everybody goes through when they are in a relationship with their coworkers, with their boss, with their teachers? We just hope that we can do the best that we can. I do have a thought on that. Yeah. And maybe you can't use this information, but maybe you can because I don't know how you talk to your children, but maybe just uh, throwing this in could be worth something. And I do have a podcast on this that is a really good like introduction, Nat Chats with Jacob on intonation. Oh, cool. I had a friend that gave me an opportunity to explain how I see intonation. It's basic psychology. This is really important for moms who want to be strong and stand their ground, but also want to be kind. And I see quite often moms are trying to be kinder than strong because they don't want to be harsh. And here's what ends up happening. When we speak to one another, doesn't matter whether we're talking children or adults, we either talk down, we talk up, or we talk level. Now, When the moms end up trying to be so nice, they end up talking up and using an intonation that says, you are above me, and they don't hear themselves doing it. But natural psychology makes the child talk down because the psychology says you're in charge. I know exactly the situation that you're describing right now. Okay. Let's just jump away from motherhood to use the opposite example. 
In customer service, sometimes customers come into the interaction and they are talking down to you and they're like, rah, rah, rah. And like, they're really (laughs) aggressive and rude. And they have an attitude that almost says, I'm pretty sure you're stupid. And I'm pretty sure I'm smarter than you. And so I'm going to talk to you this way. Well, natural psychology is to come in talking up to them and just be mousy in a way because they've insisted this is how the interaction is going to go. And depending on the personality, some people do the whole measly mousy thing and talk up. (laughs) Amanda just put her hand in the air. Yeah, that's me. But some people who have that type of personality who get spoken to like that come in mirroring that just as aggressively. And so these two people with an aggressive interaction, actually, they don't get anywhere either. What I advocate and in all situations, whether somebody comes in talking up to me and being tall, that happens a lot because height does kind of automatically make people talk up to me. Instead of me talking down in response to them, I ignore it. And I come in level at respect. And the thing about talking level with your intonation is you are not saying I'm in charge of you. I'm better than you. I'm over you. And you don't say I'm under you. I'm less than you. You're more important than me. And what this communicates psychologically, it kind of forces the other person to come in the same at respect. So this mirroring is always happening. Either this way, talking down, talking up, talking down, talking down, and talking level, talking level. Just by insisting on not leaving respect intonation, I can pull them down to respecting or I can pull them up to respecting. Usually when somebody's talking up, they are not feeling self-respect. And usually when somebody's talking down, they aren't feeling respect for you. Both of those needs to happen, self-respect and mutual respect. And so moms do this talking up thing. And it's like, it's like training your child to be this person that talks down. Mm-hmm. So unhealthy, so unhealthy. And, and yet you don't get so the results is... that you're looking for as a mom. You know, there are times when you need your children to listen. And there are things that you need to teach your child. And I've never had the words to put with it before. But hearing you say it rings so true to me talking up to them and talking down to them will not get you the results that you want. And you don't get to decide how their brain responds. Your intonation dictates it. It like leads the way, it Uh sounds like. So if you're going to talk up to them while trying to talk level and yet still talk up, you're still teaching them to talk down to you. Will you say that again? Yeah. Even if you want to be talking level, If you can't succeed at talking level and you continue to talk up to them, you are teaching them over and over to talk down to you. (laughs) Even if you have to figure out talking down to your children, you do need to master not talking up to them because the reality is children aren't in charge. Children don't make the decisions. Children don't pay the bills. Children don't anything because they're children. Mom and dad are in charge. They just don't have the mental capacity to balance all of the things that go into making any kind of big decision. No. And understand what the outcome might be. And that is how you make a monster too. By talking up to a child all the time, especially when mom and dad do it, because psychologically, that's what the child teaches the parents too. Mm -hmm. And in customer service, when I'm dealing with a parent and a child, and they come in together, it's so obvious when the parent 
is the one that's talking up and the child is the one that's talking down. The parent no longer even knows how to anything. I know. I have felt all three of them because you're never going to be perfect as a parent. Yep. And if you are trying, good luck. I admire your effort. But I have felt all three of them and can relate to that frazzling, frustrating, how did we get here? What kind of conversation am I even having right now with my three-year-old, nonetheless, kind of feeling that you are depicting? Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. I'm going to go ahead and tell Amanda. Amanda is a really nice person. Your nature is to be kind and sweet and nice. All right. So your children are going to get that from you. Kind and sweet and nice. But if you aren't aware of your intonation Mm -hmm. and you end up doing this, talking up, your three-year-old hears it and her human brain is wired this way to talk down to you. Regardless of how sweet and nice she might be even. Yes. And the concern is you said when you're talking up to somebody, it's a reflection of lack of self-respect. Did I understand that correctly? Um, Yes and no. Depends on the situation, because it could be coming from a place of you just insisting on being nice. Maybe your self-respect is is just fine, but you aren't consciously using your intonation to say, I respect me, so I expect you to respect me. I might challenge that idea, if you don't mind. Please, because um, if I can explain it differently, I need to. Right. And, and this might just be me. This might just be my experience. But I have lived my whole life as a people pleaser. And only within the last even five years, thanks to probably having kids and probably a lot to do with Max, who is not a people pleaser whatsoever, have I recognized it in myself and have found the tools to start, just start to change it. And I have talked up to people unintentionally that whole time, my whole life. And so I can recognize that even if I'm not doing it intentionally, And even if I think it's because, oh, I'm just being nice, it is a underlying sign of the self-respect that I didn't even learn that I was lacking. You know what I'm saying? And so one, it's a habit. And two, in the parent-child relationship, you don't always feel knowledgeable and in control. And you're just trying to do the best that you can. And those, the situations where you don't feel knowledgeable and in control are prime breeding ground for those feelings of self-doubt, lack of self-respect to start festering. And so even if I think that I'm just trying to be nice, I think you can be nice and still talk at someone with respect. Like, I don't think those things are separate. And my concern is, is that in talking either down or up to my children, I'm either passing on the attributes of somebody who doesn't have self-respect or passing on the attributes of taking advantage of somebody who doesn't have self-respect. And that is why it is so important to level with your child. One of the things I was thinking, if this isn't too much of a rabbit trail to go down, is one of the things Max and I learned from day one is that your child is so much smarter than you think it is at three months old, six months old, one year old. And they can rise to the expectations that you set for it. And we don't have to baby our children and we don't have to be mean to them either. Of course, like we don't have to expect too much from them. That's not what I'm saying. When uh, my five-year-old was one, if we got down on his level and we talked to him and we said, hey, I need you to eat these peas. Peas are going to make you strong and healthy. 
I know that they're kind of hard. I know that you don't think you want them, but can you try them? Like, what's our compromise here? What can we do together? Obviously, we used age-appropriate words, but that was the idea of the conversation, the level-headed conversation we could hold with our one-year-old. And the results that we got were so impressive that I don't think that I could ever underestimate my child ever again, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of revelation comes from the type of talking that you are explaining to me now when you talk with respect Mm -hmm. on level playing ground. Have you ever noticed how I talk to people? I don't think that I have paid attention to how you talk to people, but I do know that you are very consistent when you talk to people. That's one of the things that I noticed when we were working together that whether, because some people get that voice, you know, when they're in customer service, they pick up the phone and they get a voice and Uh that's how they talk. (laughs) And then they'll have a conversation with their coworkers and it will level out again. Yes. You don't have that voice. You don't use a voice for anybody. You just talk consistently. Uh Uh-huh. Just to make my point, I'm going to ask you more questions. Do you ever hear me talking up to anybody? I don't think so. Do you ever hear me talking down to anybody? I don't think so. Okay. That helps prove my point. I try to never talk down to anybody and I try to never talk up to anybody because this is where, at level, this is where good communication happens. And this is where you have the freedom to say, I didn't understand. Can you say that in another way Mm -hmm. so that I understand? Or an opportunity to say, I'm sorry, I did not mean it that way. It's kind of a way of being very conscious. You have to be very conscious of how you sound and to ensure your genuineness. Because in that respectful, genuine place, are you heard better than you ever would be by talking down or talking up? Because there is an ulterior meaning when you're talking level and respect. People aren't having to assume, she's calling me a bitch. She's acting like I'm stupid. She's this, that. Yeah, there, there is an ulterior meaning in your intonation. Your intonation is honest and genuine. It almost doesn't matter what you're talking about. When you do the respect thing, you're communicating, I respect me. I respect you. This is a safe place. Mm-hmm. Let's keep talking. Let's keep going. Especially working in a job that does require customer service, you're going to encounter all kinds of people. It does mean you have to ignore the intonation they're using and stay level out respect intonation. You do have to ignore that. So let's go back to children because I I can talk about intonation for so long. For good reason. I have a whole training written on intonation. So if... As a sweet, kind mom, you're like, could we this? Could we that? Could we this? And and let's do this. Your tone automatically says you're in charge and you can throw out what I'm saying because I'm, I like to use the word measly because it's kind of the most accurate, even though it it feels a little. It holds no weight. Yep. The, I need you to put your things in the bag so that we can go. That's like saying you're in charge. You decide whether or not you put the things in the bag. And that's what the kid says in their own head. Well, that's up for debate. And (laughs) I'm feeling obstinate right now because I'm a kid. So my things aren't going in the bag. By being a mom that can come in and say, I need you to put your stuff in your bag because we're going. You're making a statement. There's no questions there. As a mom, I would 
and, and this is an interesting thing for me to have to actually consider in my conversation with you, because I haven't ever addressed the need for a mom to be, instead of perfectly level, like just almost up bit. at 10 o'clock. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, oh. Just so instead of imagine, imagining you're both at three and nine o'clock, mom kind of just needs to barely be at 10 o'clock, never at 11 and 12, you know, never, never coming in at that angle. But mom's just that much more in charge. And so you are going to do what mom says. One of the things that I've talked about a lot with my friends and my mom did love and logic with us growing up. I don't know if you know what that is. I don't. So love and logic is one of those parenting manuals that a lot of people subscribe to and of course has its pros and cons. But the base is I can love you with logic. I don't need to yell. I don't need to lose my temper. I don't need to get frustrated and mad because I can come at you in a logical place and a logical way and give you choices and options and the natural consequences will follow. And together, we will learn how to be proper, happy human adults. Mm -hmm. And mom stays in charge. And mom stays in charge, which is why I've adopted a lot of the things that I've learned from my mom who taught and used it. So one of the things I was talking to my mom friends about were giving our children choices. To me, giving my child a choice is a way to keep on a level communication field by still retaining parental control in the sense of my four-year-old doesn't want to get dressed and ready, but we have to go to a doctor's appointment right now. So she doesn't have a choice. She has to get dressed and ready. But in her four-year-old world, she's starting to feel like the walls are closing in around her because she doesn't have a choice and she wants one. So the solution for me, in my mind, is show her what her choices are. You have to get dressed. We have to go. Those are not our choices. But you can choose to wear a dress or you can choose to wear pants. You can choose to wear your hair in a ponytail. You can choose to wear it straight. You can choose if we have cereal or you can choose if we have eggs. We have time for you to make all of those choices. So I lead her through those choices. And I have noticed with my children that... If they see where their choices are, they're much more willing to give when they don't have a choice. And I'll say this a hundred times probably during this conversation, but I think that's a human thing. No one likes to be told that they don't have any choices. No one likes an outside force coming in and being like, you have to be here. You have to do that. You have to act this way. Keep your toes in line. That's a lack of freedom. It's a lack of freedom. And the parent-child relationship is a strange one in the sense that it lends to a relationship where there is naturally a certain lack of freedom. But we can work with them on that. We can come at them on their level with that. And it was interesting to me in our conversation amidst this group of girls, one of the things that was brought up was, but what mom says goes. And that's just how I need it to be sometimes. I think that until you try the balance for yourself, you'll never know how steep that angle is or what it feels like. I think that's a lot of what parenthood is. Coming back to the idea of responsibility and thinking about the amount of responsibility before you jump into the job of motherhood, if only to contradict myself, any mother ever, ever, good or bad, will tell you that they had no idea what they were getting into. They mm -hmm. had no clue the depth of the ocean that they jumped into. Yeah. But they learned. The good moms are eager to learn along the way. And sometimes the learning curve is steep and sometimes it's not. 
Sometimes some things come naturally, and sometimes you have to hit your head against the wall before they will come. But a good mom and a good person will try to figure out where that line is between needing your child to listen to you and talking to them with respect. Yeah. To just stick with communication. I don't know if very many people understand how a narcissist is created. I have studied narcissism and read quite a few articles on it over this last year because I needed to understand it better. And interestingly, as I studied narcissism, what I learned matched what I know of autism. Interesting. And that is that when children, not infants, we move to childhood, when children get inconsistent interaction and a lack of validation the majority of the time, let's umbrella it with a lack of communication, a lack of interaction, a lack of love and attention. It almost doesn't matter. It's lacking. All those things sound like connection to me. Okay, yes. Okay, connection is the word that I want then. Okay. When children have continual connection, like I throw a ball, I see as a child, I see you catch it. I see you aware of the ball, aware of me, and you throw it back. I then catch the ball. I still see that you are connected with me. I throw the ball at you, and I see it happen all over again. Okay? When their brain is able to process this connection and this paying attention and this interaction, this important stuff, this is what their brain needs to be a healthy brain. When that doesn't happen, and doesn't happen regularly, only getting that connection in tiny pieces, narcissism is created. For an infant who gets ignored and doesn't get that interaction, autism is created. So as I studied narcissism, I was like, oh my God, this is autism at a different age. It just becomes a different ism. <laughs> And yes, the brain is doing different things because they're a different age, but I was so fascinated to learn that the two are so alike. They just create different results. And both of them, I don't know if the majority of people know that narcissism is incurable, just as autism is incurable. It's because of what happens inside the mind of the child. And with severe narcissists, just as a side point that's quite interesting, they are very childish adults extremely childish, the stuff that they see as important, the stuff that they retain, the stuff that they repeat, the stuff that keeps coming out of their mouths and their beliefs and all these things are extremely childish things that they say and do. And I think that is part of what the brain did in their childhood. A large part of it was so damaged it stayed in their childhood. Yes, there are all levels of narcissism. I happen to know one that is severe. And so I'm able to, as I read and study narcissism, I'm able to see the severity. This is another reason that I yet come right back to how big a deal it is to be an awesome mom. Because I could have, if I had had two shitty parents, I could have easily become a narcissist just based on the information I have now. Looking back, oh, I could easily have, if my mother had been anything like my father, I would have mental issues, severe mental issues, because narcissism is in the triad of the most severe mental disorders. It's called the dark triad. 
In psychology, the dark triad refers to the personality traits of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. They're called dark because of their malevolent qualities. Narcissism is characterized by blah, 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 blah. So there's that if you need it. I haven't studied Machiavellianism. I find psychology really fascinating. Me too. I'd be interested to look into it more. So that's another reason that being a mother is a big deal, because if you hand your child a device, and this isn't to say devices create narcissism and autism, the devices don't do that. The lack of interaction does it. Mm -hmm. And so people think that I might be helping my child be really smart by letting them watch all these cool science videos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they're doing is training the brain to be constantly ready for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And you're not teaching them how to interact with people, how to connect, how to communicate, how to be present, how to have empathy, how to feel Creativity. love, how to, how to do things appropriately and inappropriately, socialize in a healthy way. None of this just comes about on its own, especially with a device in a child's hand. So although parents don't want to be told, you could make your child autistic or narcissistic by handing them a device, they're not going to hear that. They don't want to hear that. But the reality is, if you aren't putting communication and connection time into your child, sorry, there is a default. There is a huge default. If you want to have an amazing child, spend amazing time with them. Well, when you were talking about the story or the example of throwing a ball, it really touched me because imagine as an adult standing with a person and throwing a ball metaphorically or otherwise and having them stare at their phone in one hand, throw you the ball, not even looking at you, and then out of their periphery, they catch the ball. So they're interacting with you, but you as an adult can sense the loneliness in that situation. I think we've all been there. I think we've all had examples of this. And you think that a child doesn't recognize that same amount of loneliness, if not more, from the parent that they love and adore. If you think that you can get away with, and this is not to say that I'm not guilty, because I am. I think we all are. I think we're all going to have to struggle with connectivity, no matter what our relationship, past, present, future holds for us. But if you don't think that a child is just as aware of the loneliness of that situation, if not more so, then there's a large amount of justification happening in your thought process, <laughs> if I might be so bold. I absolutely agree. And this does come back to, let's be honest with ourselves. I know that a lot of this could hurt your pride in your parenting skills, whether you're a mom or a dad. That's not the goal. The goal isn't to hurt your pride. The goal is to say, look what you could do. It's elevation. You could cause issues with your child or you could make them an amazing human. So this isn't about blame. This is about being honest and accepting your importance in life. You are hugely important for that child. Let's go back to the child playing ball. Let's go back to that exact example of them watching you give them eye contact of you catching the ball of all of that. The interaction is amazing. Back and forth, back and forth. They're loving it. They're engaged and they're riveted. Okay. If you suddenly turned your back on them and they threw the ball and you just stood there with your back turned to them, how is that child going to feel? They're going to feel rejected and confused. 
how long are they going to stand there and hope that they get back what they had a minute ago? Well, you think of any child. I say any child. I have a hard time making blanket statements because life is yeah, so complex. Same. But you hear so many stories, heartbreaking, sad stories of children who wait at the door for their absentee parent for years, hoping and wondering and asking if they're ever going to come back. And that parent has turned around and walked away and stopped throwing the ball. But that child will hold on to the potential of there being a back and forth for years before they give in to the finality. And you could almost argue, and there's no way to measure this, but you could almost argue that turning your back on a child has a greater effect on them than the catching the ball, because that's awesomeness, awesomeness, awesomeness. And then the turning of the back is horrible and it's hard for them. By doing something that seems like no big deal, you're really doing a big deal. I often say the little things are the big things. And I believe that in so many instances. Eye contact. You think that's a small thing with the child? No, it isn't. Touching their little hands, touching their arms, because energy is extremely real. Giving them the contact of, and safety of a parent. I'm right here. I'm touching you. And you're communicating without even knowing you're communicating. That's why my umbrella is interaction. There's so many things that fall under interaction and it's vital for that child. So whether it's turning your back or picking up a device or answering your phone or speaking to somebody else who comes into the park, it doesn't matter what you're doing when you suddenly take your attention away from the child and the child doesn't understand, you're creating a problem. So let's imagine for a moment that you are going to cut the interaction off, but instead of just cutting it off, you communicate the fact that it's stopping. I can't catch the ball for a few minutes. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then you don't catch the ball. Well, the child isn't throwing the ball going, what the hell's happening? Where did you go? Because they got the communication. They understood what you said on some level. Doesn't, you know, this is just an example. But the communication is vital and it's still the interaction that they need. They need to know what's going on. And just because they're a child, you said yourself, it's shocking how smart your little kid is. They even at, you're gonna, things. Yeah, even at one, even at two, even at three. So let the child know, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. And then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do that. So communication and understanding, essentially all you're going to be doing is building intelligence into the child. This is what we're doing. And I understand everything that's going on. I get communication. I get interaction. I get connection. You're not ever leaving the child to go, oh, I don't get it. What the fuck? That's the wrong word to use. I know. Well, I don't know. It holds a certain amount of weight, (laughs) but (laughs) not to downplay the intelligence because I think that you're 100% right. But it also establishes stability which has been proven scientifically time and time again to be an enormous factor in a well-adjusted adult, the stability that they receive as a kid. What happens when you turn your back suddenly is you teach a child that I don't know what to count on. I don't know if you're going to be here. I don't know when you're going to leave. I'm not sure what the cues are, the signals are. Is it something I did? Is it not something I did? There's no way for them to connect the dots between those two situations. And it creates instability. 
Um, I absolutely agree with that. Yes. And so when you do, as you suggest, and you say, hey, I got a phone call. Let me take this one second. It bridges the gap between the action and the result in a way that allows them to understand what's happening. This isn't about me. Mom has a phone call. She's going to take it. And then when you follow up afterwards with connection again, they learn after the connection is taken away, I'm going to receive it again. And then you create stability. And your child might complain, but in a way that doesn't really matter. You did the communicating. They're going to do the learning. Well, we're all going to feel an amount of disappointment in our lives, but healthy adults have tools and confidence to be able to deal with disappointment, right? You're never, ever going to take away sadness and disappointment from any person's life, nor do I believe you should. But when you give someone the tools to manage and understand their disappointment, you create the possibility for so much more joy. And let's take this exact example to adults. If me as an adult, I'm throwing a ball at you and I'm having a great interaction and I'm seeing that you are making eye contact with me, you're catching the ball. In a way, same thing happens. I don't end up with a mental disorder by by being ignored, but I do end up learning if you turn and you're back on me enough times, I do learn who you are and then I act according to who you are. So it's not outside of the realm of understanding that this is how humans work, whether we're children or whether we're adults. It's our interaction with individuals that affects how we perceive that individual, how we perceive other interactions. Well, I would like to point out that you, the beautiful, actualized person that you are, just explained to me a situation that I would have explained so much differently. I think because of where you're at in your life and your understanding of yourself and your self-respect. Because what you said to me was, if somebody turns their back on me, then I learn their worth and not mine. Whereas so many people, myself included, when you're in a relationship with a self-absorbed person and you don't have the tools to cope with it, you're not there in your self-respect journey, then it's so easy for you to say, well, what is wrong with me? Why aren't they giving me attention? Why am I not worthy? Right? One of the biggest deals about parenthood to me is that there is not a far gap between what we're teaching our children and what they're going to use in their adult life. And what if we teach our children their worth when they're two and three by tossing the ball back and forth and showing them how good it feels to make eye contact and have a conversation and teaching them that when I turn around, there's going to be a reason and I'm going to turn right back towards you because you're worth it. Then when they grow up and they get into a relationship where they're not treated that way, instead of turning inward, and thinking, why am I not worth it? They think, this doesn't sit well with me. This says a lot more about you than it does about me, mister, and I'm moving on. And then in an ideal world, we get a lot more adults in healthy, loving relationships, raising healthy, loving kids. And maybe this is too big to say, but a lot of our world's problems are solved. Yes, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. Interesting side point, a narcissist is going to always make everything about them. So if you create a narcissist in being a shitty parent, that child grows up believing everything's about me. Nobody else has a bad day. Nobody else is anything. So a narcissist wouldn't have the ability to go, you're showing me who you are. Mm -hmm. 
they wouldn't see everybody else showing them who they are. I accept everybody for who they show me they are. And I try to treat everyone equally. But in my head, of course, I know who the people are that are more top quality humans because they show me who they are. And so I don't make anything about me. Well, that's quite the statement. I try consciously to not make anything about me because I know that every individual is the center of their world. I'm the center of mine. You're the center of yours. He's the center of his. Each of us is going to act according to the lives we have led. Mm -hmm. How Amanda interacts has everything to do with Amanda, has nothing to do with me necessarily, you know, because maybe I show Amanda a quality she is adverse to. Well, Amanda is going to react according to what I showed her for her and from her experience. So it's still not about me. It's about her and how she sees things, how she deals with things. The same quality to another person and have them react completely differently because they have a different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Which is how we end up having certain people we're drawn to Mm -hmm. and certain people we aren't drawn to. It's everything to do with our experience and our bad experiences. If I had a friend that did a certain thing that ended up harming me emotionally, I learned from that. And then when I meet somebody who does those same things, there is a part of me that goes, oh, don't forget that. Mm -hmm. You've seen this before. Be wise. Mm -hmm. So back to the continual interaction now will stop your child from making it about them later. Yes, which will just better their lives. Everyone's going to learn. Everyone's on that journey to learn where they fit in the world, what their worth is, what their purpose in life is, right? No matter where you start, where you end, what your religion is, what your political system is, we're all on that same journey. And if you are able to give your child stability and those lessons, you're just taking away a couple of the hurdles that they're going to have to jump over to learn those lessons later on in life. You're just making it easier for them. Yeah. You're making them healthy. And happy. Yeah. Not to say that you'll do it all right all the time. Perfect doesn't exist, but we can always aim for it. Like wholeness. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that wholeness is an actual achievable thing, but I always aim. I'm aiming for feeling whole, but I'm still going to keep trying. I'm still going to keep working on it. And there's so many things that equate to wholeness or self-actualization, the other word for wholeness. That's the path I'm on, the direction to wholeness, the direction to Mm self-actualization. It's a destination that is unreachable, just like perfection, but that can still be the goal, even though you know it isn't achievable. The alternative to it is to stop moving and progressing. And to some, I think that they accept that alternative because it's less scary than failure. But if you move with the fluidity of trying to attain wholeness and perfection, you're going to experience amazing things. I don't know if you've had this experience before, but I know that Max and I have talked about our marriage, our parenthood experience. And we have noticed that when we get lazy and we sit on our bums, metaphorically speaking, and we're not doing all the things and we're not trying as hard as we could, we still feel happy because him and I are both happy people. 
and we have a good privileged life and there are things to be happy about. So we still feel happy and it's hard to look into the future and be like, I could be happier. But when we decide to or something decides for us and we start trying harder, we start moving towards that distant goal of perfection and self-actualization, we have on multiple occasions come together and said, did you know, like, did you know it could feel like this? And why weren't we trying for this sooner? Why weren't we working this hard sooner? Why didn't we get here sooner? And then you go through the cycle. And I think that's a part of human life. But those times that we've had those conversations have stuck so close to me that it helps me bridge the gap between the times where we stop trying and then we start trying again. I really appreciate the fact that I have a partner in parenthood who will never let me sit on my butt for too long so that I can always be working harder for our children and that he receives the same motivation from me so that we just keep the momentum going between ourselves. That's awesome. Nothing works when it's one-sided. It sure rolls slower. It almost doesn't matter what we're talking about. When things are one-sided, we don't have success. Whether it's a partner in life, a partner at work, a parent and a child, two friends, nothing succeeds one-sided. And so I would argue everybody needs to be present. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs to be connecting. And I, I never, ever, ever want to take away from single parents. My mom was a single parent for a very long time. I know how hard it was. I was aware enough in my growth and my age at that point to see all the things she was trying to do for us. And so I will absolutely not say this to say that there's anything wrong with single parents. I would love to live in a world where both parties work that hard all the time yeah. because the ones who suffer when one of the partners steps out are the people who are left to keep trying mm -hmm. and they suffer a lot. Yeah. A lot. You need two people there. You need someone to catch you when you fall. You need someone to go to when you are scared and you don't know the answers and there doesn't feel like there are any answers. You need someone to reel you back in. You need someone to hold you when it seems scary. Or when you have told the kids 300 times, please, 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 please do not play in the sink again. <laughs> You need someone else to take over and say it for you. <laughs> you need two people. Oh. And I have, from the moment my five-year-old was born, been immensely grateful that I am not one of the heartbreakingly unfortunate people who have to go through this alone. There are some people out there, because of circumstances that might have been beyond their control, are doing it all by themselves. They don't have a mom. They don't have sisters. They don't have a husband or a wife. They don't have a community of people to help them. And yet they're doing it anyways. And in my dream of dreams, I would love to live in a world where as society, we step in to that situation and we show support to parents. So I believe that not everybody is meant to be a parent. And that is okay. Like no one should ever feel guilty yeah. for that. But I also believe that as a society, we should support parents more than we support them right now, regardless of what choices we've made for ourselves. You mean single parents? All parents. Oh, I think all, all parents. parents. I think that if society as a whole supported parenthood more than it does right now, 
single parents wouldn't have as hard of a time as they do. And I might even go so far as to say if society as a whole supported parenthood more than it does right now, we would see less single parents. I think that a lot of the time, parents step out, obviously for multiple different reasons, but the underlying feeling is, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. This is too much. And so they step away. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it. I have seen it to the expense of the child and to the parent who is left behind. But what if we lived in a world where we elevated parenthood and treated them like they were contributing to society in a purposeful way and then supported people, nurtured people in a way that made them feel like they could do it? You can do this. You are worth it. You are making a difference. You are doing something important. Don't worry. I will be here for you. I will stick with you. I will support you while you try, regardless of our commitment to doing it too. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What if we lived in that world? What would parenthood look like? What would the family unit look like if we lived in a world where every woman who had a baby was assigned a doula who would sit with them through the next three days to three weeks to three months? I don't know to sit there and support them 100%. I think the rates of postnatal depression would go down significantly. I think relationships would be stronger. I think mothers would be more excited about raising their children and more confident in their abilities to raise their children. I think that it would realign the values of the people around them to show that parenthood is an important and worthy task to put our attention towards. I have an example that keeps coming to mind that seems like a really silly example, but at the same time, maybe it keeps jumping in my head because it's such a simple one. Have you ever had to navigate an international airport alone? I have never had to do that, but it sounds scary. Okay. Well, it's not so much that it's scary, but that when you're alone, it's stressful and you're like, okay, I got to read all the signs. I got to figure everything out. International airports tend to be quite large, and most of my international airports I experienced in my 20s. So I'm not that confident. I'm not that old. I'm not that well-versed. Even though I've been through many international airports, navigating one alone is a completely different experience than navigating one when you have somebody with you, and it doesn't even matter who that person is whether you met them on your flight and you both have the same connection or whether it's a friend or a partner or a family member, navigating an international airport with somebody is a completely different experience. You no longer feel afraid. You no longer feel uncomfortable, awkward, or stressed because you have somebody right there. It's the strangest thing, but it's so real. When you're alone, it's completely different than when you have somebody right there with you. I do not believe that we were designed or that we have evolved to be creatures who work alone. Me either. Some of us are really good at it, but I genuinely don't believe we are meant to do it alone. Mm -hmm. This sounds a little bit ridiculous to say it this way, but we have opposing body parts that fit together like a puzzle for a reason. For a reason. <laughs> and if the the physicalness of that doesn't sell it to you, from the moment we are born, we seek 
physical attention and emotional attention, the connection. I'm sure that you've heard of the study already. They did a study with monkeys and they put baby monkeys in a room with like a drip feeder. Uh And then they put baby monkeys in a room with a drip feeder, like a robotic feeder, one that was heated with fur attached to it. And that I think maybe even made noises. Uh huh. And the one that was warm and snuggly and interactive made a difference in the happiness of the babies than the one that just gave food. Uh-huh. And so if you ever think that your purpose is just to feed someone else and you can take that however you want and apply it however you want to your life, know that it is what makes you warm and what makes you interactive, what makes the connectivity that you can provide that is actually making the difference in your relationships and in your parenting. Yeah. The reality is we all want to feel good. And loved. Yeah. We all want to feel loved. We all want to feel good. And we're smart enough. I argue humans are extremely stupid, but we are smart enough. (laughs) Sometimes too smart for our own good, maybe. Einstein said, there are two things that are infinite, human stupidity and the universe. And I'm not sure about the universe. Oh, geez. I might have butchered that slightly, but that's pretty close to what you said. was there. I understood. (laughs) So I digress. We are smart enough to know what we need. We are smart enough to know what success is. We are smart enough to know what we should be doing. How about we do those things? I feel like there's an argument for the difference between intelligence and intuition there, because I feel like it is in our nature, our souls know what we want and what we need and what success is. But I feel like sometimes our brain gets in the way. I can see that. Yeah. And a lot of this, if we want to tie it back into parenting, we, from a young age, will start to piece together where we fit into the world. And then start to make justifications for our actions and our decisions based on where we feel like our place is. So if you don't feel like you have a place, you will make justifications for why you didn't go after your dream or why people reject you, why you're not doing well in classes based off of the self-belief that I'm not worth it. Um, And then on the opposite end, and there's a whole gradient of grays in the middle, but on the opposite end, If you have a big ego, then you will make justifications accordingly. And parents have a large role in how that ends up. Yeah, absolutely. You made me think of something I wrote called My Who, Your Who, Who Are You? Oh, cool. And in that podcast, I argue every one of us gets to decide who we are and how we're going to interact with other people. Mm -hmm. Whether you hug or hit is one of the ways I put it. I love that. And I'm going to use that with my kids now. (laughs) (laughs) If as a parent, you remember that, that you decide who you are and who you are affects who others are. And that's kind of the spoiler for what I wrote. That's what I say at the end, who you are affects who others are. And if you remember that and you raise healthy children, they can raise healthy children. You can literally change the world by being an awesome mom or an awesome dad. Not a perfect mom and not a perfect dad. That's not what I'm saying. But you decide your quality, your caliber of human. And that decision absolutely affects your children. Absolutely. And what if everybody thought about it that way? If we took ourselves that seriously. The little things are the big things. Take yourself that seriously. Take it all that seriously. 
let's stop insisting the big things are the big things because they aren't. The example that comes to mind is Rich Daddy buying his 16-year-old a Mercedes. Mm -hmm. Hoping to win her love. When the reality is just spending time with her and talking to her, throwing the ball and catching it and paying attention, that's what matters. That's what she needs. That's what she wants. A fancy car might be cool, but that's all it is. It's cool. That's not what children need, coolness. Mm -hmm. They need interaction. Yeah, and for the parent who is holding their child at the end of the night while they're asleep and they're thinking about all of the things that they might have done wrong the day before or the weeks before even, there is something to be said about waking up the next day and just focusing on the little interactions and moving on from there. I saw Christopher Robin, the movie, just the other day. But it looked so cute. I, I highly recommend it. I'm going to sound like overly sensitive when I say this, but I don't care. I was so disappointed when we go from Christopher Robin sitting on a log with Pooh and Pooh like laying on his side telling him, you'll never forget me, right? And Christopher Robin's like, I'll never forget you. And then when within a matter of 20 minutes, Christopher Robin is an adult and he's not giving his daughter love and attention the way he knew he should. He got so caught up in his adult world. So the specific part in the movie is his daughter says, would you read to me? And she has this book right next to her that she picks up. And Christopher Robin doesn't even notice that she's got this. He reaches over and he picks up this historical book and he just starts reading history. And you see her deflated. Like, that's super boring. And I was hoping that we could have something lovely right here before I fall asleep. And then she says, you know, never mind. I'm tired. And so he's like, okay. And he puts the book down, he turns the light out, and then he leaves her room and shuts the door. And then he stops and stands there for a second. And then he turns around and looks along the bottom of the door and her light turns on, which I hope Christopher Robin knew that that meant she'll read to herself because she didn't like the book you chose. And you didn't even notice that she had a book that she wanted to be read from. And I was like, Christopher Robin, where did you go? You know better. Winnie the Pooh taught you better. (laughs) (laughs) Is your childhood that far away from you? (sighs) Anyway, that just jumped in my mind that some of us do even know and yet still forget. Mm -hmm. When Atlas was born, my five-year-old, I held him and nurtured him. And when he was little, we did nature walks where I sat and I talked with him about all the bugs that he saw and had him feel the bark and feel the leaves and all those things. I lived for those things. I love those things. I love that part of being a parent. And I had Addie and she grew up doing those things. And then I had Roran and I realized that with each child, I do it less often because with each child, There are more hands to pull down the flour that you're making cake with, and there's more hands to go searching through the cleaning cabinet while you're working with the other two, and that there's more clothes to clean, more dishes to clean, more food to prepare, more doctor's appointments all the time that could have been dedicated to those connectivity moments. Tactile times. Mm -hmm. Are now not poorly even spent elsewhere, but spent elsewhere nonetheless. 
it is important to have clean dishes in the home. It is important to have clean clothes in the home. I spend time mending the kids' clothes so that we don't always have to go out and buy new ones. I feel like that is important. And so when you're left with all these important things, but you remember the connectivity moments, you find yourself in Christopher Robin's shoes (laughs) and you have to take a step back and think, am I missing it? Even though these things are important also. I have talked to plenty of moms to know that we all will say the same thing, that we want more time with our kids and less time cleaning, but we feel so much pressure to get things done that we lose sight of the importance of sitting down and playing. Every mom will say it every single time. It is not a shocking thing that Christopher Robin experienced the moment too. But the question is, is how are you going to balance it? And how do you view your importance in those children's lives? Do you realize the depth of your importance when you sit down and play with your kids? Mm. And if you feel it, the depth of it, then is it possible the other things could take just a little less time? Yeah. Balance. It sounds like a hard job. Being a mom sounds like such a hard job. I absolutely respect it. I really do. I've been thinking a lot lately about all my mom did for us. And as a single mom with three girls, she had to balance all the time. We never had dinners. We would go home from school and at some point we'd get hungry enough, we'd figure out something to eat. Mom couldn't be there at dinner time to make dinner. We got fed and she succeeded somehow to balance her love. And I don't think I have a single memory of of criticism for her trying to make ends meet to do all the things. Yeah, we probably learned how to do laundry younger than most people, but that's never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. <laughs> no, no. I have long legs. I have spent the majority of my life not wanting my clothes to shrink. And so doing my own laundry was a way to make sure that I didn't have a pair of jeans accidentally put in the dryer or something. And so I can honestly say that doing my own laundry from a young age was a good thing. You know, self-sufficiency, being shown, and, you know, as I say, balance. Mom clearly had to show me at some point, here's how you're going to get your laundry washed Mm -hmm. because I'm at work. So here's how the machine works. Of course, I don't remember this. But as a child, I wouldn't have figured out the washing machine alone. Right. So, you know, mom's got to figure out balance and who knows? Well, and this could come right back to our discussion about throwing the ball, right? It's not that you have to sit there and throw the ball constantly with your child, but it's the consistency in which you come back and it's the um, stability that your child experiences in your love. It sounds like you and I maybe had similar experiences. Because when my parents divorced, my mom worked full time and then she went back to school so that she could better support us. So she was working full time, going to school full time and trying to be a mom, which I hugely respect. Also, the consequences of that were that I helped my sisters with our homework and I made the dinners and I... Because you're the oldest. Yeah, because I'm the oldest. And in a lot of ways, I turned into the mom. And has that had negative effects on my life as a whole? There's a possibility that it has been. I am a very self-sufficient person. If something needs to be done, I know that I need to be the one who does it. And that is a positive in the sense that I 
am very confident that if I ever need something, it will be taken care of. And it is also a negative in the sense that I have gotten into fights with friends who get upset with me when I don't let them know that I need something. Even though there was negative, some negative consequences because of the situation, and there wasn't as much interaction between my mother and I as I got older, that doesn't mean that she failed because there was a consistency in love still. And it had to evolve because of our situation. Yes. But for those who are worried and are staying up at night worrying that they're doing good enough, just be consistent. Just and communicate. And communicate. Because communication, like when you stop playing ball, mm -hmm. communication for why this has to happen, whatever this is, carries so much weight. Yes. And I was old enough at that time for there to be an unspoken communication of, oh, mom, I see you. I see you working hard because now you have to for our family and I appreciate what you're doing. And so I will step up and do more too. At that age, she didn't have to sit me down and say, oh, well, this is what happened. And this is why I have to go to work and go to school and take care of things and why it's going to feel hard right now. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that it wasn't communicated in ways, you know, and that her love was definitely communicated in other ways too. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was trying to say mm -hmm. is despite the fact that there were negative consequences, and I think there are going to be negative consequences because you're going to make mistakes as a parent. You just are. You're not perfect. You're learning too. Babies are having babies. Mm -hmm. And I want you to try. I want you to try as hard as you can. I want you to wake up. I want you to show up for your children. I want you to be the very best that you think that you can be. And then I want you to be better in all the ways. And then I want you to love yourself because you're doing great. Mm -hmm. And all the things that you're worried about are going to be okay. You remind me of the oxygen mask. You can't help anybody with an oxygen mask until you have an oxygen mask on yourself and can breathe. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with your kids. The more okay you are, the more okay they're going to be. Mm -hmm. So if you are worried about them, worry about yourself mm -hmm. and make sure you're okay. If you have to ask for help, ask for help, but get your own oxygen mask on first because that's what your kids need. Yes. Even if you're insisting they need oxygen masks and you don't have time to grab yours, you're wrong. Worry about yourself first and then you can be something for them. Mm -hmm. What an example it sets to them because they'll see. They'll see you struggling. You think that they don't see, they see. <laughs> and then they'll see you take care of it and help yourself and love yourself. And then what are they going to do? They're not going to sit there and be mad at you. They're not going to sit there and resent you for taking care of yourself. They're going to remember how strong you were and how smart you were. And then when they need to put on their own oxygen mask, of course, this is all metaphorical, mm -hmm. but they're going to remember what you did and they're going to mimic you. A lot of parenthood is just taking care of yourself so that your children will know how to take care of themselves too. Thank you for sitting with me. Thank you, Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me over. I'm so glad you came. You're an awesome mom. I can tell. You're an awesome friend. And you mom other people pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> for the record, I do have a coworker that calls me mama and oh, I really love it. Good. And I don't even see it the same because I call my mom ma. Mm -hmm. I don't see it like he's calling me mom. But he does. He calls me mama and it just, it warms my heart. In like a, hey, mama kind of a way? or uh, No, not like a sexy mama okay. type of a thing. 
um, like I could say something to him and he'll go, okay, mama. <laughs> it's just, and he it's doesn't so mean sweet. it in any way other than as a term of endearment. <sighs> I love that. I love thinking back compliment. on our time together and thinking about the conversations that we were able to have as things were closing up or as things were starting up and it was quiet and there was no one else there. And we got to have those in-depth conversations and just that nurturing feeling that I was able to receive from you, which meant a lot. I'm sure you didn't know because I, my mom lived in California at the time. And so I was up here all by myself and having that motherly nurturing, warm, engaged energy was just what I needed. Oh, I'm so glad. I just, so I don't know glad. that I've ever told you that, but I think that Thank you. it meant a lot to me. So I should. Thank you. I appreciate it.